the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. to the Tuesday program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. I'll do my best to give you God's perspective. Um, if you want to call with any questions, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you are driving in your car. The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I'd love your questions. My voice is not completely back yet, as you can tell. Um, you're more interesting than I am, so we'd love that. While we are waiting, let's get right to some questions. The first one is from Andrew. He says, is it possible for Christians to struggle with completely surrendering to God? Uh, Andrew, I'm not exactly sure um, what your your direction on this question is, so I'm going to approach it from two ways. Um, it is always something that we do. Uh, there's a battle. Paul talks about Romans chapter 7, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? Um, we always struggle because our flesh is always in competition with the Spirit. That's why Paul writes to the Church of Corinth that if we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap from the Spirit. But if we sow to the flesh, then we'll, we'll, we'll obviously struggle with the consequences of our flesh. But Andrew, the idea here is that struggle is inborn in all of us. There's a day coming. A day when we go stand before the Lord, when all of the flesh will be gone, but that day is not today. So yeah, Christians, and if what you mean is genuine Christians to struggle with completely surrendering or to struggle with the flesh, uh, that day's coming, but it's not here. Now, that's the bad news. The good news, Andrew, is that it is a struggle that we can win. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is a verse that we ought to to have memorized uh, and be able to recall it instantly in the middle of these struggles. Um, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he, God, will provide a way out so that we can stand up under the temptation. In other words, overcoming the temptation. But what we got to do is fight, Andrew. I think too often we struggle with our flesh, typically um, when we're tempted by things uh, that our flesh likes, we we resist for a little bit and then we finally give in. It's a battle that we can win. 
It's a battle that we can win. So please understand, this isn't a battle that um, that you're doomed to lose. So yes, while we struggle with it, it is a struggle that we can overcome. Final thought on this, Andrew, is one of the things that I do, and I hope uh, this is true for all of you out there, that we make a decision in the morning, every morning, that this is a day that belongs to the Lord. It's a day not to indulge my flesh. It's a day not to do what I want. It's not a day to take it easy. This is a day to serve the Lord. And if you'll make that decision every day, it becomes a part of your life. Then, as Paul says, you will reap from the Spirit the benefits of those decisions. And then that decision is made easier each and every day. So I hope that helps. Here is the question we've got. Ben from Lake Hill. Ben on line one, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Just wanted to give you a call today about uh, the Magi when they visited Jesus. I'm wondering if you know, or at least you have a guess, for how old Jesus was and what you can do to support that answer. Yeah, Ben, it is generally assumed that Jesus was about two years of age when the Magi or the wise men showed up. And that would be the reason, of course, that Herod would have ordered all of the male children two years of age and under to be killed. Herod didn't want to take any chances. He was going to make sure that that, that this Christ, whoever he was, got caught up in his murderous scheme. And so, um, you know, we, we typically will see the manger scenes uh, with the, the wise men there. And obviously that's not the way it went. So probably um, as much as two years. One of the things, I'm not going to talk about this uh, on Sunday. Sunday is going to be our Christmas message, Ben. But you you have to admire the, the patience, the perseverance, uh, and the commitment of the Magi. Uh, I mean, these were men who were wealthy. Um, they spared no expense in getting there. This was a journey that as soon as the stars gave them a message, um, um, that they were consumed by fulfilling that message, and and nothing else mattered to them at all. So again, it's pretty certain that it was uh, a two-year-old Jesus uh, that they would have visited. And, and again, Herod, to cover his bases, suggested that just kill them all. Two years and under, I don't want to miss any of them. So Ben, thank you. Appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's an easy one. It's anonymous. Um, Pastor, I need help identifying the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. Um, anonymous, we know for sure. Now, I know for sure who they are, okay? But I don't mean to sound arrogant here. But we know for sure, for certain, that Elijah is one of them. Elijah must come, the prophet said, before the, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that is a reference, of course, to the wrath of God or the time of Jacob's distress. We call it the Great Tribulation. So Elijah was one of the two. Now, the other, I am equally certain, is Moses. There are people who will say, no, it has to be Enoch because Enoch and Elijah are the only people that never died. Um, um, but, but, but that's an argument from silence, and there's no fact, nothing to support it. It is Moses for two reasons. Let me give you three reasons. The first is that the judgments that they will um, render uh, during the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation are the same kinds of things that both Elijah and Moses did. Second, Jesus said that um, the law and the prophets testified of him. Over and over, if you believed in the in the in the the law and the prophets, then you would believe in me, because they testify of me. The law, of course, represented by Moses, the prophets. <clears throat> Excuse me. The prophets, represented by uh, Elijah, commonly called the Prince of prophets. So um, the law and the prophets, they are the faithful witnesses. Moses, the most revered Jew in history, um, certainly would be one that, that some Jews will listen to. So Moses and Elijah. Third, 
uh, Anonymous, it, it's pretty clear that Moses and Elijah appeared together also on the Mount of Transfiguration. So they would have been together uh, letting Jesus know, we read, um, all the things that were going to happen to him, kind of previews of coming attractions. And so it is It is in my mind, without doubt, that it is Moses and it is Elijah. The Bible identifies Elijah, doesn't identify the other, but all we have to do is infer. They are going to witness, and the law, of course, witnessed about Jesus. Good question. Here's a question from David. Honestly, David, I've been doing this show, I think, 12 years. I've never had this question. David says, I want to be a YouTube pastor. What should my ministry look like? David, I I hope this doesn't discourage you. There's no such thing as a YouTube pastor. Now, I understand there are people on YouTube channels, and I understand there are people that answer questions like I'm answering on this radio program every day. Uh, I understand there are people that have online churches, but a pastor has to be with the people. And for you to say, I want to be a YouTube pastor, ignores the most important thing. You know, David, one of the things that the Lord has spoken in my heart from the very beginning of my call into ministry was the people are the point. And while, again, ministry occurs online, I understand that. The best part about being a pastor is being with the people, watching what God is doing in their lives. It's not just putting out information. It's not just preaching sermons or answering questions. It's about really shepherding the people. When Jesus restored Peter, do you love me, Peter? Feed my flock. Do you love me, Peter? Tend my flock. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my flock. Now, that's the job of a And uh, the, 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 the man who wants to be a YouTube pastor sort of disassociate himself from the people of God, uh, that's somebody who's missing the point of what a pastor really is all about. So why somebody would want to be a YouTube pastor rather than a pastor pastor, I don't know. But I can tell you that pastoral ministry has not changed in 2,000 years. Now, clearly there are some pastors who abuse what pastoral ministry is intended to be. But David, you don't want to be that guy. So your ministry, you need to dig into the Word. You need to start teaching the Bible. You need to be personally evangelizing, sharing Jesus. When you do that, then God will bring you to the place He wants you to be. I can promise you, David, it is not going to be as a YouTube pastor. 340-9585. Let's go to Greg from Bolverde on line one. Greg, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, uh, listen, I, I don't know if you heard this on the news yesterday, but just when I thought the Catholic Church, well, actually the leadership of the Catholic Church couldn't get it more wrong. Uh, yesterday they announced that the Pope has uh, recognized uh, same-sex um, relationships and that they're all good with it, thumbs up, and which is that's only just one step away from, uh, you know, being able to get married in the Catholic Church. But did you hear about that yesterday? And what is your comp? You know, just give me your thoughts on it. Yeah, Greg, I can do that. Thank you. It's always good to hear from you. Um, a couple of things. I did get the question yesterday, in fact, on the program. You know, when the Pope says something, especially something as outrageous as this, that um, my audience responds. So I had the question yesterday. And Greg, one of the things I told uh, the, the person who sent the question in yesterday was, never be surprised by what unbelievers do. Um, the Catholic Church is not a Christian organization. They have the veneer of being Christian. They claim to be Christian. But a Christian is somebody who is born again. Now, I want to be clear. I say this uh, because I'm always offending people on both sides of this issue. Um, there are born-again Catholics. I've met a couple. But they're few and far between. The church doesn't teach the need to be born again, as Jesus seemed to teach the need to Nicodemus to be born again. But th this pope is not regenerate. This pope 
uh, is um, more interested in uh, emotions. He's more interested in 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 uh, appeasing people. Certainly more interested in inclusion than he is in the truth of God's word. And it is a tragedy because now there are going to be a whole bunch of people who say, well, the Pope says it's okay. Now, let me be clear about what he did. Uh, He didn't give his blessing to same-sex marriage. What he allowed uh, priests' individual freedom to do was to bless same-sex relationships. Now, that may be splitting hairs from your perspective and mine, Greg, but uh, they, they, they claim the veneer of, of uh, holding on to traditional marriage, biblical marriage between a man and a woman. Um, and yet they, they simply know if you're, if you're living in sin, it's okay. Our priests can bless you. Now, the one thing that I didn't know yesterday, because this was a brand new story, is there's been a lot of pushback from, from Catholic priests. So I'm interested to see where this is going to go. Um, it would be wonderful, Greg, if we'd have sort of a turn uh, back to orthodoxy, at least uh, claiming um, that, that the church's teachings actually matter. And so that's the situation. Um, remember, pray for the Pope. He needs to be saved. Um, if Jesus came today, uh, he would not be taken away in the rapture. So um, it's just it's just indicative of the time that we live in. Um, I've said often that I believe the time that we live in is similar to the time of the judges when men did what seemed right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what is going on uh, in, um, in the Catholic Church. And um, it is sad. It's a tragedy. Uh, but religion is no means to salvation at all. Greg, it's good to hear from you. Thank you very, very much for the call. Here's a question from Jeffrey. Uh, He says, uh, my question is about casting our pearls before swine. How do we know when to stop sharing with friends and family who crudely reject the gospel and God? Jeffrey, I have a real simple lesson in my life that's worked out pretty well. When people stop listening, I stop talking. I let them know, look, you better be right because eternity hangs in the balance. I'll sometimes say something like, we got 2,000 years of church teaching. we got the Word of God, which is really, really clear, and you can mess with it if you want, but you will not be able to escape the consequences. And then I stop talking to them. So I think that's the only way I've ever known you. Sometimes we, we feel like we need to be able to persuade. I was speaking with somebody who was sort of uh, feeling bad because uh, there was somebody in his family uh, who uh, was terminally ill, and uh, this person wouldn't listen to them, and and uh, this this friend felt like he'd failed, and I said, "You didn't fail anything. We can't save anybody. All we can do is deliver the message. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one that has to to write that message on a heart." And unfortunately, Jeffrey, the people that don't want to listen, they're going to live forever with the consequences of that decision. And I think the hardest thing for us as believers, especially when it comes to people that we care about, is that we've got to live with the pain of knowing that God is just, that he allows everybody the opportunity to make their own free will choice. And if they make the wrong choice, then that's what they deserve. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes. And we need to understand that. So um, debating, arguing, trying to persuade, none of that matters. Uh, Another thing, Jeffrey, that I say from time to time to people is we don't need to defend the gospel. We don't need to to, uh, offer anything more than a declaration of, a clear declaration of what the gospel is. All of the work beyond that point is the Holy Spirit of God. He wants their hearts, but he also knows the truth about where their hearts really are. So, Jeffrey, that's the best I can do on that one. Just let the Lord have his way in their hearts. His desire is that they get saved, but if they don't want to be saved, um, they won't be. You have to know you need to be saved in order to get saved. 
Ruth asked the question, Pastor, how did the Holy Spirit differ in relationship with Old Testament saints as opposed to New Testament believers? Ruth, in the Old Testament, Jesus, you remember, post-resurrection, he said, he breathed on his disciples and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then John explains, for he had not yet been given, the Spirit had not yet been given. Now we know that the Holy Spirit, because he's God, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, uh, he's always been active. But the reality is that in the Old Testament, before Jesus Christ was crucified and risen from the dead, the relationship the Holy Spirit had with people would be to come upon them in power. Now, when I say that, we see uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon Samson. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon David. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon the prophets over and over and over again. Um, but, but he came upon them. They didn't have Christ in them, the hope of glory, like you and I do, Ruth. So it was simply a means of God getting his will accomplished through the people that he'd chosen. It's interesting if you read the book of Judges, which I think particularly is the the most interesting, the f- most fun book uh, to teach in the Old Testament. Um, you'll see that God chooses these people, and they're really nothing special about the people at all, but God will use those people, and, and uh, the Spirit comes upon them and do these great feats of strength. They deliver the people of God, simply because God is compassionate. But once the victory was accomplished, then they went back to a regular life. David, in his famous psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, he could say to the Lord, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because he understood that the anointing of the Holy Spirit was uh, for a particular purpose at a particular time. And, and and what he wanted was give me that anointing back. And repentance, of course, was the key. Then he could, of course, say, um, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew within me a right spirit. So the spirit would come up on people in the Old Testament. But once Jesus was risen from the dead, he then came in us. Now, I'm going to take just a couple of minutes, Ruth, to explain this because I think we read so casually through the New Testament, in particular the book of Acts, that we miss the real relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. Every New Testament believer has three experiences with the Holy Spirit of God. The first is when he comes alongside us. The Greek word used is para, P-A-R-A, and that means he just comes with us or he comes alongside us. And that's when he begins his ministry of convicting us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Now, Ruth, I don't know what it was like for you, but when I was unsaved and I became aware that the things I were doing were horrible and sinful, uh, things that I'd never been bothered by before, that was the Holy Spirit coming alongside When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, well, then he comes in us, our English word I-N, the Greek word is E-N, and that's when he is given to us as a deposit, a seal, guaranteeing our inheritance. That's when we are saved. So, very important for us to understand, he convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. When we respond... Excuse me, when we respond, then he comes in us. And then the final relationship that we have, and you'll see this repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, is he comes upon us. That Greek word is epi, E-P-I. And he comes upon us, and that's when he empowers us to do something in a particular circumstance or particular need. Similar to the Old Testament relationship, but remember different because the Spirit also lives in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, Ruth, that's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, you know, we, we listen to these Old Testament heroes we revere them, and rightly we should. We um, want to we, we marvel at the miracles. Uh, the reality is there isn't a single Old Testament saint 
that wouldn't have traded places with us in a moment to have the intimacy with God. The intimacy with God that that we're able to enjoy every single day. So, Ruth, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Um, I've got one minute. Let me try to find a one-minute question. This is anonymous? Nope. Mark says, how will God judge people who don't believe in him, but who also do their best to live good and godly lives? Um, Mark, we're all going to be judged for one thing and one thing only. What do we do with Jesus Christ? There are no good people. There's none good, none who seeks God, the New Testament tells us. And so God will judge them, and they're going to be separated from God for eternity. We call that hell. So I don't know what you're getting. You think if somebody's good. Now, clearly, there are different levels of punishment in hell. God is fair. God is just. But make no mistake, the worst, um, the, the best part of hell is absolutely horrible. So God will judge them all based on what they did with Jesus Christ. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your calls, 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand of Her Life. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I want to welcome welcome you back to Radio Land. It's good to hear you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I'm calling because Psalm 119, all the little separate song psalms, they have words above them like Elf or something like that, Beth mm-hmm. and Gimel and Deleth and He and Wan. Well, all these words ahead of them, and then they have a little. Uh, character, you know, with them, and I'm wondering, what what exactly are they? Are are those words that describe the uh, content of the psalm, or what? And that was my question. And I have another one about Jacob, but I'll call tomorrow when I can get my okay. uh, get my eggs a little bit more in a row to to ask a question. So Thank I'm going to get Cindy. off the radio. Bye. Appreciate it. Psalm 119 is regal. It's just majestic. Um, the the letters are the Hebrew alphabet, and and uh, the author is simply going through the alphabet. and And if we read Hebrew, understood Hebrew, um, then the idea there, or the 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 portion of the psalm, starts with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That all is doesn't have anything to say about the content at all. It's simply. Um, you know, some a way that we would say, for instance, sometimes in messages, we'll have three points and it'll all start with the same letter. This is just the author making a point from A to Z. We would we that's that's our English alphabet. From A to Z, the Word of God has it all. So, Cindy, that's all it is, and it um, um, really one of the great psalms. You know, Paula reads a psalm a day and a proverb a day, in addition to other reading that she's doing. And and you know when you when you read that and you get to Psalm 119, you know it's going to take a while, but it is such a wonderful, wonderful psalm, instructive. Um, I think now I'm going off the top of my memory here. Uh, I think in all but two verses the word is mentioned, so it's just absolutely glorious. Cindy, thank you very very much. I'll look forward to your question um, tomorrow. Here's a question. I've got two anonymous questions. Now, the first one is okay, but the next one is going to be sort of for mature audiences. Uh, I don't want to avoid the question, but if you've got children listening, uh, when I get done with the first one, you can kind of turn the volume down for just a moment. The first one says this. My father is living a gay lifestyle now. How do I honor him, uh, as the Bible says, 
while also honoring God. Um, Anonymous, I'm going to be really, really clear here. Uh, The way you honor your father is to tell him that what he's doing is wrong. God is the only one who makes the rules. And that the consequences of the lifestyle choices he made will be an eternity separated from God. Now, you do that in love, and obviously you do that with emotion. You do it with compassion. Um, You know, I used to tell people, look, I can't imagine heaven without you. In this particular case, with your father breaking your heart, let him know that what he's doing, the choices he's making, I have broken your heart. But then say, I've got to honor you. And the way to honor you is to tell you the truth in love. I'm going to be praying for you, Dad. I love you, but I cannot accept, nor can I give any possibility that this is a lifestyle that God uh, approves of. Um, And you need to know that there will be eternal consequences for the choice that you make. And I think that is loving, it is honoring, respectful. At the same time, it honors the Lord because it tells the truth. I think sometimes, especially with family members, we get to the point where we want to just sort of go along to get along. You know, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to make people feel bad. Uh, and so we just sort of don't say or do anything. And that's the worst possible thing that we can do. If he asks for evidence, First Corinthians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 5, Romans chapter 1, uh, all of those New Testament passages make it really, really clear that that is a sin. Okay, before the mature question, let me go to Vicky on line one from San Antonio. Vicky, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Thank you. I had a question regarding Sarah and Abraham. Mm-hmm. I understand, you know, from Hebrews that Sarah's in kind of the Hall of Fame for faith, correct? Yes. Okay. So was the faith that she never lost faith in God through her years and years, 25 years of being barren, or was it faith, I know this is maybe, but or was it the faith and the promise to Abraham that he would become the father? Because, you know, with her plan with her maid, yeah. uh, or her servant, Hagar, I'm like, I'm all over the place with, was it just a waver in faith throughout those that long waiting period? You know, that yeah. every now and then, like we all do, you know, we question God. Or we come up with our own plan, or if you could just expound on that. Yeah, I, I can, Vicky. Thank you, and 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 people like you and and um, I are grateful um, that that people with wavering faith are included in Hebrews chapter eleven. Um, Sarah, um, obviously, her faith wavered. Uh, she was uh, at times manipulative. Um, got tired of waiting. Who among us doesn't get tired of waiting for the promises of God? Uh, And yet she believed God. And I think this is consistent with both her and Abraham. They believed God. Now, one of the things that we need to remember is it doesn't say in Genesis they believed in God. We know that's true. But they believed him. They believed his word. And uh, while she had those moments of doubt and those um, those times where her faith failed and she took matters into her own hands, the reality is, is that she walked with her husband through that which seemed impossible. That's important. She walked with her husband through that which seemed to be impossible. And yes, her faith was weak. Yes, there were times it failed. First uh, Peter chapter three uh, says that she she uh, submitted to his leadership. Um, uh, I mean, we go all the way back uh, in Sarah's life to uh, Abraham's call. When when Abram was called Abram, Abram, the Lord said, uh, and and He said, "Leave your family and and go to a place I will show you." Um, imagine the faith it took. For Sarah, Sarai, Sarah, uh, imagine the faith it took for her when when Abraham said, "Look, we got to go. Where are we going to go? Well, God spoke to me. We got to go. I don't know where we're going to go yet." So she was his partner. She was his partner, and um, because she had lapses in faith, um, the 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 lesson for all of us, Vicky, is that we too uh, can have those lapses in faith. We not something we want to do. But the reality is there are sometimes that circumstances are overwhelming. 
um, even even after 24 years, she had doubts when Jesus uh, showed up in Genesis chapter 18. Um, and she heard him say, next time your wife Sarah will be with child, or next year at this time. Uh, she laughed. And then she came out and Jesus said, why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. He said, yes, you did laugh. And yet there she is, uh, 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 an example for all of us, Vicki. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to uh, Greg online too. Greg, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, just a guy, a quick comment I need to make about the Catholic Church again, real quick, before I get to my question. Is it's like, have has the Pope and his cardinals not read Deuteronomy, where it states that for a man to live with another man as with a woman is an abomination to God? It's like, you know, when the Holy Spirit wanted to use the word abomination, I think he made it pretty clear that, no, no I'm not with this. Yeah, great. Great. Here's your, here's your disconnect, and your disconnect is because you're so passionate about this. So so this is as simple as I can make it. They do not care what the Bible says. It says straightforward. They simply don't care. They're tossed. They're tossed like waves of, uh, you know, winds and waves of doctrine. Um, they, they're more interested in appeasing people uh, than appeasing God. They they simply don't care. And, and, right. and, and yes, they've read the Bible. They don't care what it says. And that is not unlike a whole bunch of other professing Christians as well. What's your question, Greg? Okay. Uh, I had this discussion with a friend of mine, and uh, he uses uh, what well, his argument is, and it, it really lines up with the Mormon church, and he's not Mormon, uh, he's Christian, and I'm not sure, I don't agree with him, the scripture he uses that supports his argument, but he's of the opinion that we all existed with God in like what the Mormons call a pre-existence. And uh, I had a discussion like this with some Mormons once, I said, well, if we were all with God in the beginning, uh, why would he feel the need for us to leave this place of paradise where everything's great to throw us, you know, on earth uh, to watch us fail? And so that doesn't make sense with anything else I've read in the Bible. And um, maybe he uses the, the scripture from Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, from Ecclesiastes. It's chapter 12, uh, verse 6 and 7, 6, 7 and 8. And then he kind of combines that and links that with Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. And if you want me to read this real quick over the, over the phone here. Uh, yeah, read, read the Ecclesiastes verses. Okay. Uh, let's see, let's see uh, 12, 6, and 8. It says, remember your creator, be- this is verse 6, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the gold bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well, then the dust will return to earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Uh, vanity, vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity, fear God and keep his commandments. Let's see, maybe I wrote that down wrong. That doesn't, that doesn't sound right. Greg, I know where you're going on this, and, and uh, uh, one of the problems with Ecclesiastes is people try to use the books of poetry. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is poetry, uh, and trying to make doctrine out of it. Ecclesiastes is nothing more than the musings of of uh, an, an older, wiser, um, frustrated Solomon at the end of his life, looking back on a life uh, where all his potential was squandered. Uh, when when you read meaningless or vanity, vanity, it. Excuse me, I'm coughing. Uh, it, it literally means that. Um, I'll take a breath here. It literally means uh, a chasing after the wind. You can't catch the wind. And so, what he's talking about, all of that musing. Now, remember, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Um, and yet, apart from God, he found out that the wisdom had no value. He chased fun, he chased pleasure, he chased wealth. He chased knowledge, and at the end, the conclusion was that everything that he did was meaningless. 
everything apart from the will of God was meaningless. Now, you'll find that some cults, and Mormons are a cult, uh, you'll find that some cults will grab onto those things and, and misread them, and they lose the uh, biblical hermeneutic, and they can come up with anything. The reality is is that there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that we were ever with God. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that we will all have our own little planets um, and, and eventually achieve godhood. Um, the, the reality is, if people want to believe that, they're going to do it. I have a guy who has been talking to me about reincarnation. And, um, you know, he says, yeah, but so many people believe it. Well, they can believe what they want, but there's a, a cost to making those kind of choices. And the reality is um, the Bible is really clear. Uh, when we are created by God, actually we are created through the birth process of God. When we are created, that's when we begin eternal life. We're going to live somewhere forever. And we've got to make that choice while we're here on this life. And so, Greg, one of the things, and I know your heart is so filled with compassion for people, but those are arguments that aren't worth getting involved in. Those are um, um, meaningless arguments. If people want to know the truth, the truth is there for them to find. And if they want to know the truth, God will reveal it to them. If they don't want to know the truth, then there's absolutely nothing that you can do to convince him of something that's true. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Michael from New Brumfels on line one. Michael, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Pastor Ron, thank you for taking my call. This is Michael from New Brumfels. I just wanted to say that I hope you feel better and your cough gets better. Thank you. Number two, I do not agree with what the poll announced last night. I was devastated. Devastated. And I am so sorry. I'm crying for many other people that are Catholics and been holding on to the Catholic religion. And all I can say is that I just hurt. I can't believe what he announced yesterday. It just shatters everything. So thank you for everything you do. And God bless you. My pleasure, Michael. You know, Michael's a great object lesson for all of us. You know, we, we ought to have that kind of passion and compassion for those who are lost in religion, whether it's Catholic or any other kind of religion. You know, religion makes people feel like they're, they're safe, that they've got some eternal life insurance policy. But the reality is, as evidenced by what the Pope said uh, or yesterday, what was made public yesterday, he's been going in this direction for a very long time. He's been dropping those hints, sort of testing the waters. And uh, the reality is uh, that people that choose to cling to the Catholic Church, people that choose to cling to the doctrine of the Pope, the, the vicar of God on earth, or so they say, um, th- then they're, they're holding on to the wrong thing. Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And as Michael pointed out, through tears, people are going to find that they have eternal life insurance policies that aren't going to be cashed in. And that really, really is a tragic thing. Rather than getting angry because of what the Pope did, then let our hearts be like Michael's heart and be really, really sad and pray for the people that we know that are lost in any form of religion. Thank you, Michael. Great object lesson for all of us. Okay, here's the question that I'm going to get to. It's anonymous, so turn down your volume if you've got kids in the car. Um, Pastor Ron, my husband wants me to do some things in bed that I feel really bad about doing. And then in parentheses, she writes oral sex. He claims it is the only thing that satisfies him. We're both believers. So how do we navigate this? Now, obviously, I'm not going to be able to get into this at length on a radio show. So the first thing I'm going to do is encourage as strongly as I can that you and your husband go to marriage counseling. Find your pastor, go to marriage counseling and deal with these issues. The other thing, we, we need to understand that, that, that the sex in the marriage bed is not designed to satisfy you. It's always designed by God to bring satisfaction to the other partner. Now, there's nothing wrong with oral sex. The Bible 
very clear, Song of Solomon, uh, oral sex is described. There's nothing wrong with it. However, this is an issue that you need to deal with. You you need to deal with why do you feel so bad about it? Why wouldn't you want to please your husband in this way? And then if your husband knows that this is so upsetting to you, why would he keep insisting that you do this? Uh, it seems to me like both of you have forgotten what Paul says. The, 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 the wife's body doesn't belong to her, nor does the husband's body belong to him, that your bodies belong to the other. And the, the sexual relationship in a marriage between Christians ought to be filled with passion. It ought to be filled with adventure. It ought to be a fun place to be, a playful place to be. But it also needs to be a place where all of your effort is spent on pleasing your partner. And in the process, you're pleasing the Lord. So beyond going any more in depth than that, please go find marriage counseling at your church and deal with this issue. It seems like both of you are holding on to the things that God says don't belong to you anymore at all. If you were in my church, we'd talk about this privately, uh, and I'd have no problem dealing with it, but um, there's just too much going on uh, to answer that kind of program on a radio show. Five minutes, okay. This is from Marion. She says, A friend wants me to use they, them pronouns. I don't think I can. What should I do? Um, Marion, um, I've answered this question a bunch of times on the program. Um, um, I'll call anybody whatever they want to be called. If a woman comes up and says, my name is Bob, okay, I'll call you Bob. But if you ask me to lie, if you ask me to misuse the language, I'm not going to do that. So I agree with you. And I would simply say to your friend that she's not being much of a friend uh, because to use those pronouns is a lie. She is biologically a woman or she, he is biologically a man. And to, to instead of using her or she or him, uh, to use they, them pronouns is, is, is simply a cop-out. It's simply not the truth. And stand your ground. And if it costs you a friend, then so be it. It costs you a friend. But I'm with you. We simply cannot cave in to what this world that we live in is doing relative to redefining our language. Words have meaning. They have value. And um, to change pronouns to pronouns that don't even work linguistically in the sentence is, is, is being asked too much. Again, I'll, somebody tells my name is Bob, uh, I'll call her Bob. But I'm not going to call a him, a her, or a they, or a them. I hope that makes sense to you. Good question. Okay, maybe last question. Anonymous. How can I convince someone about hell being real when they say, when they, say they don't care or even that they prefer going to hell rather than going to to God. Um, you know what I would tell him? You know, you're going to get your wish. What, what more can you say? And, and again, I want to emphasize when you say, how can I convince? You cannot convince anyone of anything. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, and when he comes, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. All you are is a messenger. You deliver the message. And that's really the only thing, Anonymous, that we can do. We tell them, they make the choice about what to do, and this nonsensical attitude about, well, you know, I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to party with all my friends. Um, believe me, deepest, darkest blackness is going to be reserved for them, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it's what they chose to do. That brings up another issue with this question. You know, a lot of times I think people will say, I can't believe God would send somebody to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. God makes it really difficult for us to go to hell. In fact, I like to say that we've got to step over his dead son's body in order to get there, and risen body, in order to get there. He makes it so obvious. 
And yet when people choose evil, this is the kind of nonsense that you get. I did a funeral one time where um, a bunch of hell's angels were at the funeral and they were talking about uh, the guy that died. He's well, he's in hell party and he just started the party. We'll join him later. And I when I gave the message, I told everybody, you should be ashamed of yourself. You have no idea this young man is in eternal torment because of the choices he made. And so too will all of you be if you take this approach. So you can't convince anyone sin is insane. There's no reasoning through it. There's no reasoning with it. And we've got to be okay with that. Our job is simply to tell people the truth in love. And then what they do with it is between them and God, and we have done anything and everything possible in order to tell them the truth. And that really is our only responsibility. And you know what? We've got to be okay with that, Christians. We've got to be okay with telling them the truth and letting them choose. God let you choose. God's going to let them choose. And we've got to be okay with that. Hey, thanks again for putting up with my voice. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. This is the Word to Send of Her Life. Tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 6 The Word. Lord willing, I'll be back. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.